Man, you can grab a seat, church. And if you're in junior high, you can head out um, Sunday school that way. Um, well, as Lauren mentioned, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to um, worship with you this morning. Um, as we were worshiping, I was just reminded of just this amazing truth that we see in the Bible, that we learn in the Bible, is that if we were, were told in God's word, if we draw near to God, um, this is an amazing promise. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And really, in, in a very real way, if you think about what it is that we do on Sunday mornings, a great deal of it is dependent on that promise, right? That we come together as God's people and we draw near to him um, by singing songs, uh, proclaiming that all that we have is Christ. We, we draw near to him as his people um, by praying to him, by calling out to God. And what we're about to do right now is we're about to open up his word, John chapter 17, and we are going to draw near to God through his word. We're going to have an encounter with the living God. The truth is God has something to say. He is a living, speaking God. And as we open up his word this morning and discover what he has to say for us, I don't know about you, but I do not know how you can have an encounter like that and leave a place unchanged. In fact, I'm convinced it's impossible. And so this morning, we discover what God has to say to us here in John 17, and our hope and our prayer is that he would take these words, the words that we just read, and the words that we will examine together and study and look at, um, and that he will take them and write them on our hearts and form us and shape us into the people he has called us to be. Church, let's draw near to God together as we consider what he has to say for us in John 17. As a church, um, last couple of weeks, we have been looking, and we will for a number of weeks ahead, um, at this really significant moment in the Gospel of John. We're, we're studying what is called and often referred to as the high priestly prayer. In fact, many of your Bibles will have that as a sort of a, a heading over John 17, the high priestly prayer. If, we are, if you're familiar with Jesus at all, you know that Jesus was a man of prayer. He, he was a man of prayer. When he lived on this earth, he would constantly retreat and meet with the Father. He, he was constantly calling out to God. He was a man of prayer. We, we also know, if you're familiar with your Bible, that Jesus, it wasn't just that he was a man of prayer. He is a man of prayer. This is precisely what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me. He's at the right hand of the Father continually to live interceding on our behalf. This is what Jesus is doing. He is praying for us. What's so unique, one of the things that's so special about John 17 is for as often as we see Jesus pull back in prayer, we don't often hear what he prayed. And so John 17 is so significant because we actually get a recorded prayer from Jesus. And it's the longest prayer that Jesus prayed that we have a recording of. And it's also, I would argue, um, quite likely the most significant, the greatest prayer that Jesus ever prayed. As we considered verses 1 through 5 last week, the, the, the focus of Jesus's prayer in verses 1 through 5, Jesus was petitioning the Father. He was praying to the Father for himself. 
That's what the focus was last week. Jesus wanted to see as the cross loomed in the near future, just moments away from his death, Jesus wanted to be able to glorify God the Father in his death. And so what we saw last week was that God's glory is revealed in the cross of Christ. And that's specifically what Jesus was asking the Father would do through his death, that he would would make much of himself for all to see. And so we examined how the cross revealed to us the very character and nature of God, thus putting God on display for all to see, glorifying God the Father. Now here in verse 6, Jesus' focus in his prayer shifts. He's praying no longer for himself, but, but for his disciples, for the men who have received his word and who are following Jesus. In verse 9, he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Jesus' focus in this section turns from himself to the disciples who are immediately around him, those who have given themselves to Jesus. And so this morning, as we consider verses 6 through the, the first half of verse 11, One thing that I want you to notice and that you will likely see is that as he's praying in these verses, there are no requests. There are no petitions in these verses. Jesus is not, in these verses, asking God for anything. He doesn't start to do that until, well, next week, halfway through 11, on through the rest of the chapter. What we discover here is that uh, before we, we consider what Jesus asks for his disciples, what we see this morning is why Jesus asks for his disciples. Before we look at, at sort of the requests that he makes on behalf of his disciples, this morning our focus will be on the reasons that Jesus prays for them. Remember, Jesus, like we just said, is facing his death. He knows what his destiny is. And this is easily, unquestionably, the most terrifying and horrific moment in all of his life. He's moments away from his death, from his arrest and his murder. And yet, Jesus pauses and prays for others. Jesus is in his most terrifying moment. And yet in a chapter, it's made up of 26 verses, five of those are his focus on himself, the remaining portion of the chapter. This is how selfless Jesus is. The remaining focus of his prayer is not for himself. Moments before his death, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for you And for me, that should give us just a wonderful glimpse into the selfless, sacrificial heart, the loving heart of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, as I said before, this is referred to as the high priestly prayer. Uh, A theologian, uh, Michael Reeves, helps us understand sort of the priestly duty that Jesus has and how it relates to this prayer. Um, the, a high priest, this idea of a high priest points back into the Old Testament when, when high priests were men who were appointed by God uh, to represent sort of on behalf of the people. 
One of the the more familiar duties that the priests would have is um, they would make sacrifices for the sin of the people. And maybe you're familiar with the Day of Atonement when they would symbolically sacrifice a goat which would represent the sins of the people. And what we'll see in, in John 19 is that Jesus serves as not just the priest, but also the sacrifice. So he, he, the sacrifice he makes, though, is not a goat, but it's his own life, his own flesh, and his own blood. That's, that was the work of a priest, sacrifice. But there was also an ordinary work that the priest would make that did not involve sacrifices. But, but their ordinary work was to offer up sort of sweet smelling incense um, to the Lord, before the Lord, in the tabernacle. Um, To do this, while they were in the tabernacle, lighting this incense to go up before the Lord, the priests were wearing, the Bible tells us the description of what they were wearing, they were wearing this, this breastplate, a golden plate that hung over their heart, and on that plate there were jewels. And in, in these jewels, there were 12 different jewels on this plate over their heart. And each of their, those jewels was inscribed and represented one of the tribes of God's people, one of the tribes of Israel, each inscribed on these jewels. So the picture is that the priest would enter into the tabernacle, would go before the Lord with the very people of God on his heart. That is precisely what is happening in John 17. Jesus, the Son, is coming before the Father. And in the Old Testament, this idea of lighting incense was was symbolic of offering up prayers from the people to God. It It was symbolic. It represented praying. And so Jesus comes before the presence of the Father and offers up the sweet aroma of prayers that are are rising up to God the Father. And he does this with the people of God on his heart. He, He does this with you and with me on his heart. This morning, as we consider why Jesus prays for his disciples, we learn really a great deal about how Jesus thinks of these disciples, their very nature. Now, there's a temptation here for us to simply see this text, to see what's happening here in John 17 as sort of a a history lesson. While the immediate application is for those first disciples, I I believe there's nothing that's said here in John 17 that, that does not apply to every disciple through the ages, including you and me. So what we'll see this morning as we consider why Jesus prays for his disciples, we will learn that Jesus thinks, when he thinks of his disciples, he sees a genuine disciple as those who, whose identity, whose faith, and whose calling is firmly rooted in Jesus himself. I'll say that one more time. Genuine disciples are those we see in the text whose identity, whose faith, and whose calling are firmly rooted in Jesus. And and those will just be our three points this morning. First, let's consider what this text has to say about our identity. Why is he praying for them? And the moments before his death, why does he turn his attention, his focus, why does he pour out his heart to the Father on behalf of the disciples? Well, the first reason is simply because of who they are. 
their identity. It, we'll see this here in the first, uh, we see this in, the, in, in all of these verses, but really comes up in verse 6, the first portion of 6. We learn that the disciples are the precious possessions of God. They are, after all, the text tells us, the people whom he has manifested his name to. He, he has manifested his name. See, see it there in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Just like we saw last week, this is Jesus' supreme objective. In, in coming to the world, it is to manifest, to glorify the name of God. To, to, to lift up and exalt and to draw attention to, to, to make visible or to show who God is. Now, in the Old Testament, a, a person's name was really everything, represented everything about that person. And so to reveal the name of God, to manifest the name of God, was to make the very nature, all of who God is and was, visible for all to see. Jesus reveals, manifests the name of God. Now, this is not the only way throughout time that we have, that God has chosen to reveal himself. As we are familiar with the Bible, if you are, you know that, that God has also revealed himself through creation. See this in Psalm 14, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the sky above proclaims his, his handiwork. Certainly, God manifests his name, reveals his nature to us through creation. We also know that he, he reveals himself to us just providentially throughout human history. God reveals himself to us. We open up God's word as we are doing so this very morning, and God manifests. He reveals himself to us. But Scripture is also very clear that the greatest revelation of God himself is in Jesus Christ, the Son. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the very image of God himself. You want to see God? Look no further than Jesus. In John 12.45, Jesus himself says, And whoever sees him sees him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, if you are looking at me, then you see the one who sent me here, God himself. I am a manifestation, a revelation. I am God in the flesh. In John 14, 9, in a sort of a moment of frustration, just a few chapters prior to this, um, Philip asks Jesus to, to show, he says, show us the Father. And Jesus, listen to Jesus' response. Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the greatest revelation, the supreme revelation of God himself. And as his people, his people bear his name. He has manifested his name to his people. These people, we know that God has manifested their name to them, but they are also a, a, a people who have been given to him. The disciples, he says, are possessions of the Father. Look at what the text says. Yours they were. Jesus is, is praying for a group of people who in the mind and sovereignty have, of God have been called out of the world by the Father and given to the Son as love gifts from the Father to the Son. They are the precious property of God himself. 
The disciples belong to God. Now, the scene, remember the scene, Jesus knowing. The reason why we have this prayer recorded is because the disciples were in his presence listening to his words. Jesus, knowing that these men are in earshot, right there in his presence, listening in on this very intimate moment between the Son and the Father, says these words, describes their identity, that they are the precious property, the precious possessions of God the Father that have been given in love to the Son. They belong to God. The disciples belong to God. Imagine men in, a, in the midst of uncertainty, perhaps tremendous confusion. Imagine the comfort, the hope that this instills into their life, into their anxious minds and weary hearts. They belong to God. This is no small thing. Jesus is praying for them because this is who they are, the precious possessions of God himself. Last night, my family and I found ourselves watching Toy Story. I don't know if you are perhaps familiar with this beloved series, wonderful movie. Uh, but in this series, you know, you, you kind of, I don't, I'm not a good, I'm not the kind of person that can quote a lot of movies or remember even a lot of what I see, honestly. Movies kind of just, I fall asleep halfway through, usually is what happens there. So, um, but Woody's sort of adventure, sort of in this life of Andy, um, you, you consider his adventures and, and sort of every, everything that he is doing sort of in this movie, the determination that he has to continue against terrible odds and growing difficulty. Ultimately, his perseverance and his purpose and his really joy in life come from the fact that he has somebody else's name written on the bottom of his shoe. Right? His motivation in life comes from the fact that he has Andy written on his foot. Folks, the application here for us is endless. You, if you are in Christ, you belong. It is Christ's name that is written on our hearts, on you and on me. We belong. We are his precious property. That's how God sees you this morning if you are in Christ. Listen to what John Calvin, the great reformer, says. We are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. Do you see the application here? If we belong to God, then he makes sense in our very living and even in our dying. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Folks, if we are not our own, but belong to him, then we don't belong to ourselves, right? 
We are not primarily concerned about pleasing ourselves. If, if we really see ourselves as belonging to God, then our first aim in life is not to just please ourselves, always looking out for number one, but rather our aim in life is to first and foremost please God. It just gives us so much direction in the way that we, we view the difference between right and wrong. Knowing that we belong to God helps us understand even just morality in our life. What's the difference between right and wrong? It helps us stop putting ourselves first. It helps us to trust the fact that we believe in God, that we belong to God, helps us put our trust in Him through thick and through thin. The application is simply endless. Who are we? We are his precious property. We belong to God. That's why Jesus is praying for them, because they are his. That's why he prays for us. Second thing, why else does he pray for them? He, pr he prays for them because they are, uh, the disciples are, are men, are people of faith. They are people of faith. See it in verses six through nine. I'll just read those again. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are Yours. As, as we consider sort of the faith that the disciples have that's evident here in these verses, we can think of it sort of in two categories. The first is God's work or God's initiative. I want to point out, if you can look at the verses, you can see how active God is throughout this entire process. Their status, ours for that matter, is utterly dependent upon God and His activity. Our status as followers of Jesus, as, as those who belong to Him, is completely dependent simply on God doing His thing. See it in verses 6 and 9, that we belong to God. We are His. We have been given to Jesus by the Father, the activity of God, given um, to Jesus by the Father. God has been fully revealed to them through the Son. Again, this is God's work, His initiative. Jesus gives the words that the Father has given Him. The Father has given words to Jesus, and Jesus takes those words and gives them to the Son. Last night, I was blown away as I was just studying this chapter, reading it through several times. And what I, what I, I came to notice, and I don't know, the first time that we, uh, the first week of the series, we stood up and we read um, all of the entirety of it, uh, John 17, together. And it's a, it's a, it was kind of a challenging exercise to read this out loud. And, and part of the reason that it was so challenging was because of, of the words that are repeated in different orders throughout the entire chapter. One of the words that comes up over and over and over and over again is the word give. 17 times in this chapter. And every time it's mentioned... It is mentioned on behalf of what God is doing. The giving is always coming from God, from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the people. 
I have given, I have given, I have given, I have given. It cannot be more clear that as a people of faith, as God's people, we are completely dependent on what God has done and gives to us. It is all of God in his work. Our salvation is the result of God's initiation. He's a gracious God. He's a giving God. And we're the recipients of his gift. But we also have a responsibility in his work. The fact that he is a God who initiates does not alleviate us from responsibility. We see in verse 8, we're given a glimpse of what humanity's responsibility is in the great saving work of God. Um, It says in verse 8 that, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. As we consider our responsibility, I would circle that word receive. They have received the words that God gave to Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus, one of his primary sort of ministry tactics was the proclamation of God's word. He would regularly preach and proclaim the, the message of the gospel, the, the message of the kingdom of God, and he would, he would preach those words. And, and, and many, many, many people would hear those words. Crowds would gather to hear those words. But what set the crowds apart from the disciples was that as he proclaimed those words, the disciples received them. And you keep going, it says, come, they came to know in truth. The NASB says that they truly understand what Jesus was saying, that Jesus came from the Father. The words didn't just, they weren't just received and heard, but they were embraced and understood. And then finally he says, and believe that you sent me. And so you have a picture of sort of what our responsibility is as the word of God goes out, that we receive his word, that we understand, we come to know his word as truth will be a major theme throughout the rest of this chapter, that we receive it, we come to know it as truth, and we believe it. We believe it to be exactly what it is, God's truth. He, he gives us a picture, provides a picture for what it looks like, this life of faith, what it actually looks like. He refers to those who have been faithful to him, his disciples, as keepers of his word. You see it in verse 6. They have kept your word. They have kept your word. They received it. They understood it. They believe it. And they keep it, which means they obey it. God's word actually makes a difference in the lives of his people, that their word transforms them, that they hold fast to it and abide in it, that God's word is cherished and treasured by his people. I don't know if you have ever attempted... I I, I pray in God's great mercy, you've never found yourself in this position. Have you ever been tempted to talk to a child while they are in front of a screen, (laughs) fully engaged, locked in to a video game or the latest Disney show? Have you ever tempted this? It is not easy. I have great sympathy for you. Attempting to speak to a child while they are distracted, just engaged 
with a screen. Oftentimes this can happen in our house and uh, it's not unusual for us to, I mean, it's one thing to speak to a child while they're locked into a screen. It's another thing to ask something of them, okay? Because you will find that if you ask something of them while they're engaged in a movie or a video game, that they will get, it'll either, like the communication gets crossed and they, they do the wrong thing. Like, hey, could, could you come down here and walk the dog? And next thing you know, they're bringing you diapers. You know, it's like, no, like I knew, they're not listening, right? Or whatever you ask them to do gets halfway done, doesn't get finished. And oftentimes I think that this is what can happen to us as God's, as we encounter the living word of God, that we can become so distracted. It can be sort of just supplemental to our life that we can become so distracted. We, we just view God's word as maybe something that just provides a little bit of inspiration or, or maybe confirmation in our day. But does God's word actively shape and direct our lives? Does it transform us? Would God look at you and say, you are a keeper of my word. You are a caretaker, a possessor. You protect God's word with your heart. You, you cherish his word so much that you are determined to pass it along to other people in the grand work of disciple making. For those men and women who are men and women of faith, God's word is critical in the way that we receive it, understand it, believe it, keep it. It's very, very significant for the life that we have been called to live as people who belong to him. How do you interact with God's word? Does it make it into your daily schedule? Do you read with, do you talk about God's word with those who are closest to you? Where's God's word at and active in your life? For the people of God, it should be. For the people of faith, it should be front and center. Finally, Jesus is praying for these disciples. We learn, yes, because of their identity. Yes, because they are people of faith. Finally, we'll see that he's also praying them, for them because of their unique calling. We'll see, we'll see it in verse 10 in the beginning portion of verse 11, that the disciples are God's chosen instrument for continuing the work that Jesus has started. This is another motivator for Jesus. Jesus' prayer is it's the calling or the purpose of the people for whom he prays. See it right there in the text. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus recognizes that, that it is through God's people, in Jesus' absence, that God will put his the glory of his name on display for the world to see. They are glorified in the very, Jesus is glorified in the very people of God. This is Jesus' paramount concern. It's the glorification of God. And he wants to see God glorified in his disciples through them. So what he says in chapter 15, 8, he said, By this my Father is glorified, how that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the, as the disciples, as the, as, as the church, as we bear fruit, Jesus says, this is how the Father is glorified. And he defines that, if you keep reading in John 15, that bearing fruit looks like the way that we love. 
One of the key aspects of bearing spiritual fruit is by how we love one another and display God's love for the world to see. Last week, we considered how the church is effectively a mirror that reflects to creation, to the world, all of God's nature and his glory. We also see that that part of their calling is continuing the work of Jesus. See it in verse 11a. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. The final reason that Jesus advances to ground his prayer for the disciples is because Jesus is about to leave. He's about to return to the Father, go back to the Father. He will no longer be in the world. Therefore, the disciples, aided by the Holy Spirit, will be left to navigate the world's temptations and trials from one day to the next. And they, in order to do that, are going to need prayer. They're going to need prayer. Consider their circumstances. I mean, their leader is about to be murdered. What will their fate be a very similar path they will be asked to walk down as followers of Jesus. This is why Paul encourages Timothy not to be fearful in the face of persecution. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's par for the course. It comes with the life that God has called us to. Suffering, persecution, temptation, That's why earlier in John, uh, Jesus encourages disciples. He, He reminds them, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is an inevitability. And Jesus is praying for them because they are going to need it to carry out his work. He has supplied, he gave them an example, a model. He says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. He he provides for them an example of the work that he has called them to do. And he supplies for them the very means by which that work will be accomplished. The Holy Spirit, the comforter. He he has left them in the world, but he has not left them to themselves. And this is where Jesus is to this very day, praying for us, his people, that we would continue his great work work in this world. So church, this morning, in in conclusion, these words are not just meant to be a history lesson. What was going on? What's the context? These words provide for us a window into the very heart of God. And with these words, as his people we are encouraged to be reminded who we are. We are a people who belong. What it looks like to live a life of faith, receiving God's word, understanding, believing, keeping his word close to our heart. And we're reminded of what our calling is in this world, to glorify God, to make a big deal about a big God and to continue his work in this world. And we're not on our own. Jesus to this very day is praying for us that we will be faithful. He has supplied us precisely what we need to that end. Be encouraged, be encouraged. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us as your people to be a people who are marked by your word. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be reminded, even this week when we are assaulted with lies um, from around us, Lord, from the evil one, that you would help us to, co to combat those lies with your truth. Lord, that it would be um, the truth of who we are, that we are your precious property, Lord, would shape and form the way that we live our lives, the way that we view ourselves. Lord, give us eyes to see our world as you see it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who have a strong faith. Lord, who hold fast to your word, who speak your word, who study your word, who know your word and share it, Lord. Father, and I pray that you would help us to be a people who have embraced the call that you have placed on our life. Lord, that we would continue on as one people, the work that you have started. What a privilege that you would entrust such a mission to us. Help us, Lord, to bring glory to you in all that we say and all that we do. We love you and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.